Well, good morning and wherever you're listening from today, we're going to talk about a subject that a lot of people are excited about. I mean, there's some people in church that are saying, Bill, you need to preach more on this. And they're not thinking it because they need to hear it. They're thinking it because of all the people they know that need to hear it. And, you know, this is what happens in spiritual pride. We discover something that we want everybody else to find out about. We've learned, and so we figure that the only thing that that they need is to hear about how wrong they are because we've discovered how right we are. And, you know, if the prodigal son's story tells us anything, it tells us that God isn't just not cool with the behavior of sinners, but he's also not cool with the moralism of the self-righteous. Either way, when it all comes to one thing in our relationship with God is that we lay down our own pride and ego and we grab a hold of a humility and a heart to love and, and learn to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength to love our neighbor as ourselves. then lay all of that self-effort down to simply say, Jesus, I let you surrender my life to let you love others through me. That way, when you love, you can't even take any credit for it. And to learn to love in this way really, I think, is the mission of the Christian life. And the one thing that keeps us from doing that, a perspective of distance and separation between us and God. So then we don't rely upon or rest in the empowering force of faith, the faith of Christ himself, but we instead rest in our own goodness. And that's probably one of the biggest reasons why we don't love like Jesus none of us can rest in a goodness of our own apart from Christ and expect to show more love than he did. Eventually, you got to come to the place where you surrender and let Jesus love through you to no boost of your own ego. So today, we're going to talk about the one thing that keeps people locked in this condition of unloving, compassionless existence, and it's the topic of sin. Yeah. There's a lot of people that want me to preach more about sin. Bill, you need to talk more about sin. But of course, what they're thinking of is all the people that they see in life that need this message. Not them, others. Other people need this. Why? Because they're surrounded by people that are sinning. I mean, that sin, they're hurting other people, especially them. them. And of course, they want people to stop hurting them. And so uh, they want people to stop sinning. And so they want us to preach more on sin in hopes that we'll modify the behavior of people. The reality is what we're looking for is an impact to the heart. And that's what the gospel is supposed to be. The gospel is, is a transformation of life. So you see reality from divine perspective. Uh, as Dan Moeller famously says, the gospel's not here to serve you. The gospel is here to change you. So if you've gone around looking for a church that will serve you you're always going to be disappointed when they fall short of your expectations. But when you look for somebody who's willing to preach the scriptures, the word of God, and introduce you to Jesus, an encounter with the Holy Spirit that changes you from the inside out, he will confront every perspective of distance and separation that you have. He confronts our sin. But today, I'm going to talk about sin from the scriptures. So get your Bibles out. And go to the Gospel of John, if you would. And we're going to go to a familiar story in John chapter 8, starting in verse 3. As you're turning there, let me just pray a blessing over you and over our time today. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful to you for this time. 
I, I know, Lord, I always begin prayers with gratitude, but it's it's the thing that's preeminent in my heart. When I consider the reality that I could not have saved myself, you did it single-handedly. And so then, God, through my eyes, let others be seen, knowing they can't save themselves, they can't modify their behavior into being loved by you, that they are loved just as they are, right where they are, in the condition they're in, they are loved as is. Father, may every person know this today. May every person realize this today. Lord, may it be awakened in their heart that right in the middle of their darkest darkness, that they are loved as is, and that nothing they can do will cause you to love them anymore. That realization, God, has always gripped my heart. And Jesus, I'm so taken with the fact that you have you have chosen us from before the foundation of the world to be united with you. God, I, I'm just overwhelmed with the reality that nothing in me of sin could overpower the righteousness, the holiness of your existence, of your love for us. So, Father, I thank you for overcoming our sin with your righteousness, overcoming our unrighteousness with your holiness, for seeing us as you have always known us to be, and that is invited to be in you, adopted, born of the Spirit, originated in your mind, in your heart. Father, I know that today that it is awakening within each of us the reality of the mystery of the gospel, Christ in us, the hope of glory. So Lord, let us today see with even greater clarity the reality of that union and Lord, I pray for those who are sick in their body today, for those whose physical afflictions, whose physical afflictions are, are blinding them to the reality of your goodness because of the pain that they find themselves in. Father, would you meet them in their suffering today? Embrace them from the inside out. Let them know that you are not rejecting them, that the sickness on their body is not uh, an, an evidence of a lack of love, Lord, but let your love be seen in healing Lord, let miracles happen even today as people listen to this, this podcast. I pray for, for healing for sick and broken bodies today, that health would come to their life, that health would come to their finances, that health would come to their relationships, that health would come to their families, that it would be on earth as it is in heaven with no hindrance, limitation to your power, your authority flowing to and through us today. God, I pray that today would be a day of miraculous awakening for each of us. Thanks, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles open to John's gospel, there's this story in John's gospel in John chapter 8, starting in verse 3, the story about the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. You, you got to know that this was a setup. And it was a setup by the religious understanding that their perspective of Jesus and sin was really confused. It's not that Jesus ever exhibited in his own life any kind of sin, except that he had a compassion and a care and a love for sinners. So much of a compassion, care, and love that he would actually sit down and eat with them. And that breaking bread with sinners culturally was seen as, as more than just tolerance, it was an acceptance of the person. 
And when confronted about this, Jesus responded by simply saying, the sick need a doctor, you guys. You understand that, that I, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, when he calls these sinners to repentance, you don't see the sinners rejecting him, running away from him, wanting to yell, crucify him. What you see is these people loving him because his call to repentance was a, a, a call to turn from the false self of who you think you are to the truth of the reality of who God knows you to be. And the reason I believe they loved him is because who God knows you to be is always better than who you think you are. Which is kind of strange when you stop and think about it because, you know, we, we all, uh, you know, think so highly of ourselves. And the Bible warns us, don't think so highly of yourself. You know, don't, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Well, the reality is it's wrongly of ourselves that's the issue. And most of the time we think wrongly of ourselves. We don't think more highly of, of who we are than the reality. We think our, ourselves to be something that God doesn't necessarily agree with. And so God looks at the false identities that we've built up and the false concepts of ourselves that we've created, and he wants to confront those with the truth of who he's known us to be. And let's just be honest, when we get into a frame of mind where we are uh, creating our own image uh, in our own mind of who we think we are, most of the time... Most of the time, there is an element of negativity in that perspective that is often reflective of what other people have said about us. We tend to believe the negative and ignore the positive. We believe the criticism. We ignore the flattery. Now, I don't think we should believe criticism or flattery. I, th I think we shouldn't stop and consider ourselves through the lens of any other person's perspective other than Jesus himself. And so it's important for us to ask of him, who do you say that I am? Now, what if we are caught in an action that doesn't reflect the nature of the kingdom of God at all? And, and what if we're brought before God and the worst of our sin is put on display in front of him? That's exactly what happens to this woman in this moment. This woman is caught in the act of adultery. It's a setup. The man that she's with is, is not brought before Jesus, but she is. And you got to understand, she, she's coming from this place of being engaged in this activity to now being put before the eyes and the presence of the Son of God. Now, in this moment, the mystery of the story is, you know, people want to know, what did he write in the sand? He bends down, he scribbles in the sand. And, and Michael Card's beautiful song, Scribbling in the Sand, said this beautiful phrase that I think is worth meditating on. The same finger of the strong hand who had written Ten Commands was now simply scribbling in the sand. In other words, that was the finger of God that wrote the Ten Commandments. And in those Ten Commandments was the thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, you know, uh, that whole concept um, has been from the beginning a bad idea. And we know this, we should know this, but the reality is in this moment, now Jesus is scribbling in the sand. Is he rewriting the Ten Commandments? I don't think so because it has a different effect than the cheering on of the self-righteous moralism of the crowd that's standing there holding rocks ready to kill her because that's what the law says you do in this instant. And Jesus 
simply says, he doesn't tell us what he's writing on the ground. We never know what he's writing on the ground. A lot of good speculations out there, but I'm not going to go into those today. But what he does say is this, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Let the one who has no sin be the first one to throw a stone at her. And of course, as it turns out, you know the story, not a single stone was thrown that day. But instead, each of the accusers simply lets the stone fall to the ground. And one by one, they stroll away. And eventually, there's nobody left there. You got to know as the crowd dwindles down in size, that it becomes more and more uncomfortable to stand there. You got to ask yourself, who was the last person holding the stone? Like who, who held on the longest thinking, maybe we're still going to do this this thing and finally drops their stone and walks away. When Jesus and the woman are together and nobody else is around, Jesus simply asks a question. He says, woman, where are your accusers? Is no one here to condemn you? And she answers, no one, Lord. And I love this in this moment, she recognizes she's at his mercy. And isn't that probably the, the most proper posture, the, the most perfect posture of us when we find ourselves in sin with no defense at the mercy of God? And that's the deal here. She looks at him and says, no, no one, Lord. She just simply agrees with him. And she's probably more shocked than anybody. There's no one here to condemn me, Lord. It doesn't cause her to become self-righteous in this moment saying, I guess I'm okay. I can go too. She now puts herself in his hands alone, at his mercy alone, at his judgment alone. There's a lot of people out there who will like to tell you what God thinks about you. There's a lot of people out there who will judge you and say that God judges you in the same way. But when it comes down to it, in this moment, she finds grace in his presence and seems to have no sense of begging and pleading for mercy in her voice at all, even though maybe we would think that's exactly what she should be doing. But that's not what she does here. In this moment, she recognizes, listen to me, the safest place in the universe for her to be is under the judgment of Christ. You hear what I just said? The safest place in the universe for a sinner to be is under the judgment of Christ. Because the judgment of Christ is not looking to destroy you. It's looking to restore you. The judgment of Christ is not looking to condemn you. The judgment of Christ is looking to empower you to the truth of your identity and the truth of your destiny The judgment of Christ is not coming to validate your sin. It's coming to separate you from the sin that would seek to steal and kill and destroy your life. The judgment of Christ is salvation. And that's the safest place for us to be is under the judgment of Christ. And Jesus now responds to her surrender to his judgment by saying this, neither do I condemn you. In other words, this is the area now he is going to agree with the religious. 
and that is the choice to not bring condemnation to her. And what does he do now? He says, go from now on, go and sin no more. Listen to me, what I'm about to say to you. The grace of God does not empower you to sin. The grace of God restores the standard of righteousness. It restores the standard of holiness. It is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross that eternally gives us access to the throne of grace where because of Jesus we can come boldly and find mercy. Find mercy. You understand what I'm saying? Do you need mercy today? You'll find it in the presence of Jesus. He said, I thought I was going to find judgment from God. I thought I had to clean myself up in order to be able to stand righteous before God. No, you bring your you 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 bring your sinful self. You bring your sinful carcass before God. You bring your sinful body before God. You bring all the lies and labels you believed about yourself to the throne of grace where you can find mercy in the judgment of God that severs you from a sin identity to discover the son that you really are, to discover what it's like to be a child of God, to receive the name and identity of being a son and a daughter of Jesus Christ. You're saying, a son and a daughter of Christ? What? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Remember last week's podcast, Show Us the Father? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen him. He's putting the Father on display. When Jesus said, go and sin no more, I don't bring condemnation on you. Now you're free to live from a life of uh, of severance of sin, to live free from sin. That was the voice and the heart of the Father toward you and I in our darkest moment where we know we are guilty as sin. He sets us free, severing us from guilt and shame that comes with that that identity, that sin-based identity that many of us have been living in for so very long. You've been doing the same actions over and over and over again, think you can't get free, and you think that's who you are. God still doesn't agree with you, no matter how much of an expert in sin you've become. Now, this story tells us three things about how Christ sees sin. Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. And he knew that anybody who was going to jump into punishing sin is not without sin themselves. So for you and I to know the mind of Christ is to know that if even all of humanity, every person who has ever lived, born just like all of us, If all of humanity had been present at that moment and we would have been the one caught in the act of sin, there still would not have been a single stone that was thrown that day. So understand this, that sin at its core is our communal human tendency to jump to judge another as unrighteous and ourselves as righteous. 
To step into a revelation of how Jesus views sin is to recognize and confront this within ourselves. And that is, we are not as loving as we need to be. So when I say we don't love enough, what I'm saying is we have a tendency to hurt ourselves and hurt others. And and this story tells us that Jesus looks at us, wants us to be freed from the pain that we can inflict on ourselves and others. And that's what sin is. It's that, it's that ability to inflict pain upon ourselves and on, on others. Sin brings that capacity for us to bring judgment, guilt, shame, pain into the lives of each other. And Jesus says, go and sin no more. The confrontation Jesus had in this moment was not with the woman caught in adultery. It was with the people that were holding the stones. They suddenly have to face their own heart, their own condition. And and that means they had to come to the awareness that they were not loving in this moment. They had to actually be aware of their own waywardness, their own heart, and be confronted with repenting of the sins of their own life, their own past. And when we become aware of our own condition, then we begin to realize this is all about our relationship with God. Not us being consumed with somebody else's sin, but us becoming aware of the barriers and severances in our own heart with respect to our own relationship to God. It's so much easier to point out the blatant open faults, embarrassing faults of someone else, as opposed to being open with the embarrassing faults of ourselves. But the reality is, is every single one of us have those faults. Every single one of us have those sins, even in our own thought life. And if we were to admit it, every one of those sins is just flat embarrassing. But the confrontation of Jesus to the people holding the stones is not for them to walk in judgment or condemnation. He wants them to be just as free as the woman now here in this moment that he's about to not condemn and set forth to go and sin no more. Now Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 says this, that Christ was like us in every way except for the issue of sin. He was without sin. Now, when I say that we're made in the image and likeness of God, one of the biggest pushbacks I get is, is in this, that, that Jesus had no sin and we do. And so we would say that sin negates the completeness of the likeness. The difference between us and Christ is blatant. It's obvious. So we would think of Christ likeness as a person who never sins. We would say things like, well, we're subject to sin and Christ is not. And so you can't say that the likeness of God is in us, Bill, because that difference is so glaring and huge. But understand this, the, the, the essential truth of who Jesus is as the Christ lies precisely in Jesus' response to this difference of his sinlessness and our sinfulness. And Jesus here, when he says, I don't condemn you, proclaims the difference here 
to be somewhat irrelevant. In other words, don't separate yourself from relationship with me just because you have the propensity towards sin. Your sin only severs relationship between you and God in your mind, not his. Jesus eating with sinners ought to tell us this truth. He has no problem engaging with us in the darkness of our own delusion about ourselves brought on by sin, the deceitfulness of sin. So if you think you have to get rid of sin to be able to come before God, stop it. (laughs) Come before God, bring all of your delusion, and then say, who do you say that I am? And let the truth of what he reveals to you sever you from the lies that you believed about yourself that have resulted in actions of sinfulness that have gotten you labeled a sinner. This is how Jesus severs us from our sin. Suddenly we find ourselves uh, completely sorrowful that we ever entertained the idea of taking on an identity that would cause us to be blinded to the reality that we are worthy to be called sons and daughters of God. See, what sin does is it negates the the likeness, the image and likeness of God in us to the point where we can't see any similarity between us and Christ. It's impossible when we are locked in sin to see the mystery of the gospel as Christ in us, the hope of glory. People who are Christ-like are simply seen as having no sin. No, no, no. People who are Christ-like have surrendered to who Jesus says they are in spite of how they've ever lived their lives. They've come to this awareness of surrendering to the adoption as sons and daughters of God. So this is what happens when you surrender to open your life to Jesus Christ. He goes straight toward the most sinful and shame-based place within your heart, within you. He doesn't go there to condemn you, and he doesn't go there to tell you to shape up, change your ways, get right. No, he goes there to break your heart wide open, revealing the mystery of the cross. And in the mystery of the cross, Christ most deeply and radically reveals that we are totally loved in the very midst of all of our most sinful moments. We meet Jesus in the middle of our darkness, and it's as if he's lying in wait for us to finally see and accept that which is most broken and most lost within us so that we can see in that moment how absolutely, irrevocably, undeniably, invincibly loved and whole we are in the middle of our brokenness, in the middle of our sin, we are loved as is. It's in this moment you let the love of Christ melt your heart and you realize that all of that sin is being washed away in the depth of a love in which nothing but love can be found. That realization of how deeply we are loved by God is the kindness that leads us to repentance. See, as a human being, a finite human being, a spiritual being have a temporary human experience, you're created to know and to love. And I believe for three reasons. So you and I can come to know God. 
and he's clarified in Jesus Christ. Anything you think you know about God that doesn't agree with who Jesus is, rethink it. Go back to the drawing board of Jesus Christ and let him reveal the Father to you. The second thing that that happens is we learn to love God. And that's what Jesus does. He invites us to love him because he first loved us. His love for you is not a reward for your good behavior. He loves you as you are. And that love becomes an invitation to say, yes, Jesus. And this comes to the third part, and that is to give ourselves back to God. So we come to know God, we learn to love God, and then we just simply give ourselves back to God, who is our origin. He's the foundation, and he is ultimately, in Christ, the fulfillment of our life. And I invite you to do that today. Come to know God is hopefully what's happening as you're listening to this podcast. To learn to love God is what happens as Christ is revealed. To give yourself to God is an act of the surrender of your own will. That you say, well, am I giving up my freedom? Well, in a sense, it might feel like that. But the reality is, as long as you believe a lie about yourself, you're never truly free. It's not until we surrender our lives to Christ to give our life back to God that we discover what it means to live abundantly and who the sun sets free, the Bible says, is free indeed. Well, I come to the end of my time today. I pray that this podcast has been empowering for you, enlightening for you, but beyond all of these somewhat complicated concepts, I pray that you come down to the simplicity of going, Jesus, I give you my life. I give myself back to you. You can write to us here at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Go to BillVanderbush.com, click the podcast page to hear this podcast again. And uh, I'm so grateful for you for taking the time to be with me today. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.